You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. A few years ago, one of you said to me, you prayed for me. And I kind of looked at you, and I, I wasn't really placing that. I couldn't quite remember where that had happened. And very graciously, you prompted me. You said, you know, that story you told. And uh, you were on a morning jog, running through your neighborhood. And you were in such and such a place at such and such a time. And you said you heard a siren. And, um, well, that was the morning that I had a medical emergency. And they had to send an ambulance. And the ambulance came, and I survived. You saved my life. And impossible to get my head around that idea, but it was true that I had been praying in just the time, just the place that he said, and uh, here he was in front of me, uh, healthy. He survived that serious medical condition. And it appears to me, and it has appeared to him, that God had a rescue planned for that moment. That he was a rescuer for this man. And that God somehow, through prayer, wanted to involve me in his rescue. Now, I think if you step back from that, and you see what Jesus is doing in offering his disciples this prayer we call the Lord's Prayer or Our Father, that Jesus is inviting us into the same kind of opportunity, all of us, to participate through prayer in his rescue, not just of an individual, but of all creation. So, uh, he gives us this prayer. And it's not just a set of words, but it's actually a way to live, a, 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 a new spirituality that comes out of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Let's look at this prayer. We've been studying it together. Would you open up your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you'll find that on the Pew Bible, which is the black book there, uh, page 787. Matthew 6, verses 7 through 13. If you're able, let's stand together. Let's read this as a congregation. When you're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. When you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. I, I've been trying to communicate to you that the phrases of this prayer offer us different postures of spirituality, the spirituality of Jesus. Because in each of these phrases, there's kind of a subtext, there's a message. God's revealing himself in a certain way, and then he's inviting us to orient to that revelation in a new posture. So, for example, just to review, our Father, um, here's what comes to my mind. Uh, imagine a, a, a proud mother, a proud father, showing a coworker pictures of the child on a phone. This is my child, you know, show, this is my child. So when, when God invites us to pray, our Father, 
I think the message is, I'm proud of you. And the posture is to pray then in a posture of privilege. When we are asked to pray, hallowed be thy name, what, what comes to my mind is of a physician. And, and you come into her office and you look behind the desk and you see framed uh, diplomas on the wall and news clippings with her name in all of these frames. And, and I think the message there is you can trust me. You can trust me. And so when God says, hallow my name, he, he wants us to know that there is a name in the world, in the universe, that we can trust. And, and the posture, therefore, is a posture of adoration. Wow. It's impressive. I trust you. Well, today we come to the second and third petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And it's familiar to us. Your kingdom come, verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We take them together because they illuminate one another. And here's the picture that comes to my mind. I just imagine being in New England back in the you know, mid-18th century and a patriot comes to you, kind of disguising himself, sits across the table from you and is inviting you to join a revolution. Here, I think, the subtext is you can change the world. You can change the world. And, and, and if that's the case, then the posture here that we're being invited into by these two phrases is the posture of what I would call insurrection. The insurrection is a rising up. It's the emergence of a new world order within an old and passing one. See, when we pray that kingdom come, we're being reminded that Jesus is a rescuer. He's a revolutionary. He's got a mission. And the world is not the way it's supposed to be right now. The things we see, the things we read about, human trafficking, environmental degradation, hunger, racial tensions, domestic abuse, childhood diseases, elderly at the margin of our society, war, dot, dot, dot. All of this is a part of an age that is passing away because it does not reflect the rule and reign of creation's king. And you, and I mean you, can participate in this revolution. The question I'd like to address this morning with you is how? How would we do that? How would someone like me, and I'm very familiar with the limitations of someone like me, change the world? And I want to offer you three sub-postures. I was glad that Randy presented uh, our confession very physically because I have three physical gestures for you as well. In answer to the question, how do we change the world, I want to suggest we hold on, we hold back, and then we hold up. Okay? Let's first look at holding on. Uh, this text, I think, encourages us to hold on to Jesus in countercultural living. There is a flow to our culture that would move you off of the kingdom of Jesus. Hold on to him. Hold on to his teaching. Hold on to his person. So when Jesus says, pray this way, say thy kingdom come, what you're doing is you're praying a prayer of allegiance. You're saying, I believe in a better king, a greater king. I believe in a coming king. This, this is my loyalty. Thy kingdom, thy kingdom come. Now notice this, by the way. I've said this before, but the kingdom is coming here. It's not that we're going there. 
Right? We ta- oftentimes think of uh, God's project is to get people out of creation and into heaven, get them in the clouds or the harp somehow. That's not the way Jesus is conceptualizing this, is it? He's saying, I want you to pray not get me to heaven, but get heaven to me, to us. Bring the kingdom. Many of us know the Tolkien story, Lord of the Rings, and the final book of that is called The Return of the King. And in The Return of the King, there's a chapter called The Steward and the King. It's a chapter in which we realize that, you know, for 25 generations, Middle Earth has been governed not by the royal lineage, by the kings themselves, but, but by the stewards, the steward. There were these people, they were called stewards, and they pledged an oath to the king to rule on the king's behalf, quote, until he shall return. Until he shall return. They, now, they never sat on the throne. They sat on a little black chair off to the side, never raised the, raised the royal flag, never wore the crown. And yet, in every decision, they represented the authority of the coming king till he shall return. I think this is a good picture of what it means to hold on to Jesus in countercultural living. The stewards rule in his place. And Jesus, uh, he, he will tell us all these stories about a man who goes away, receive a kingdom, and come back. And in all these stories, the implicit hope is that when that man comes back, he would find that people are making the decisions that he would make if he hadn't left. Decisions about how we use our body, what we do with our time, how we use our money, what our friendships mean to us, what classes we would choose, how we use our education, what we do at work, what we do with our appointment, our phone, our sleeping bag. All of it, because it's not ours. We're stewards, see. If you take this petition and put it in the context of the wider gospel, it fills it with meaning for me, because Jesus in the gospel of Matthew is portrayed as a king. I think you could call the Gospel of Matthew uh, the good news of the great king. Just remind yourself of the flow of the whole gospel. It begins at the very beginning with the genealogy of the great king. He's a descendant of David, chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, he comes into confrontation even as a baby with an earthly king called Herod, who's vicious. Chapter 4, now an adult, Jesus begins to gather his royal subjects with this announcement, the gospel. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. He says, it's here. Chapters 5 and 7 are his royal edicts. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. This is where the prayer is. In chapter 10, he commissions his subjects as royal representatives and sends them out to speak words of peace. In chapter 13, he tells stories that describe the character of the kingdom. Wonderful stories. What is it like, though? Chapter 21, the king, Jesus, enters Jerusalem to claim the royal throne. Chapters 24 through 25, just before he dies, he talks about a time in which he is coming, he's going away and then coming back. An age of absence and a royal return. Chapters 26 and 27, he lays down his life and they put a sign over his head on the cross that says, quote, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It was meant to be mockery. (laughs) But Jesus gets the last laugh when in chapter 28, we meet him now in the face of the resurrection And he looks at his followers and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go. So Jesus is saying, I am the king. But you are participating in my royal rule. I like the way Dallas Willard says, Every last one of us has a kingdom or a queendom or a government. A realm that is uniquely our own. Where our choice determines what happens. 
This is the core of the likeness or image of God in us. It is the basis of the destiny for which we were formed. We, all of us, are never-ceasing spiritual beings with a unique eternal calling to count for good in God's great universe. I mean, that's helpful to me because I tend to think, oh my gosh, what decisions really can I make for my life, you know? They all seem to be made for me, and they're also very ordinary, you know? Get up in the morning, take out the trash, pick up after the dog, do the carpool, delete email, do the carpool, drop off the package, take the medicine, pick up after the dog, floss, back to bed, right? I mean, it's a very small kingdom, uh, but <laughs> it's mine. And uh, Dallas Willard says, you know, it's been given to you because you're in the likeness of God. You've been made to, to rule. You've been given dominion. That's what Genesis chapter 1 said. This is the purpose of your life, to make decisions like a steward would make on behalf of this great king. And as you make these decisions, you change the world. We change the world. So hold on to Jesus in countercultural living. That's the idea of kingdom. I think. But, but let's move on. Uh, because there's a problem in this paradise, and the problem is called me. It's my will, okay? You might have one too, but I do. Uh, so let's talk about holding back. It's time for us to think about holding back the tendencies of our compromised wills. And this is what Jesus is doing when he says, now, I want you, as soon as you pray for my kingdom, I want you to stop and think about what you really want um, and how it usually goes. And I want you to pray, not my will be done, but thy will be done, which is aspirational. And he's saying, I want you to withhold, hold back the normal tendencies of your unbridled will. I was on an exercise ride yesterday. I mean, Chris is running a marathon. I did a long bike ride with my wife because I want to get in shape, you know, stay in shape. But I couldn't resist stopping for cheese and uh, ham croissants. <laughs> And an apple fritter. <laughs> and by the time I got back, I had not lost any weight. I had gained weight. You know, not that weight matters, but uh, the point is my will has its own life that I can't seem to rule. So how can I make decisions ultimately that would bring heaven to earth, that would reflect the reign of Jesus? I, don't, I can't even reflect my own intention, let alone heaven's. And it's not just my problem. In 1944, the pastor came to church. And he was wearing street clothes and his old army boots because it was all he had. He came to gather with his flock. The church was there, but the cathedral wasn't. Overnight, Allied bombing raids had taken out the center of Stuttgart, Germany. With it, the cathedral of Stuttgart. All that was left was the choir loft where they gathered. And as Helmut Tielicke, the pastor, looked at the steaming rubble and grieving broken lives, he talked to them about the will and self-will. He said something interesting. He said, I stood there holding in my hand a key to a door that no longer existed. And I want to say to you, it wasn't just the door that no longer existed. It was faith, it was naive faith in humanity that could no longer exist. This idea that through enlightenment, we could assert the human will in such a way that we could bring heaven to earth, this utopic vision, which just swept away in the middle of the 20th century. You know, for anybody who had held on to these ideas that somehow we could will our way out, you couldn't believe that anymore. And he talked about 
the pastor this, what he called the descending line, the descending line of self-will. It runs in the biblical story from, from Eden to Cain and Abel, you know, with death and violence, to the vengeance of Lamech, and, which multiplies social disorder, to the Tower of Babel, I would say then, to the camps of Auschwitz, and to the crater at Stuttgart. The assertion of human will against God, and often even in the name of God, self-will has actually enslaved the will. Listen to his words on that day. Tillichus says, man in his self-seeking defiance of God has given himself over to the domination of alien lords and tyrants to whom he can surrender of his own free will, but whose domineering demonic grip he cannot shake off. Did you catch that? He's saying you can use your freedom and you do use your freedom to liberally surrender to all kinds of lords and alien gods. But what you can't do is once you've surrendered to them is get your freedom back. Our wills have been compromised. So let's hold them back. Hold them back. Now, here's, this is even more depressing. You know what? You and I cannot fully hold back our wills. That's part of the compromise. This is true personally. If you're like me, uh, many times a week you will look your sin in the face, sober-eyed, and you'll say, I don't like you. You're done. Pack up your bags and go, right? And uh, don't let the door hit you on your way out. But unfortunately, you know, you're saying this to, to anger or the bottle or pornography or whatever it is, self-pity. Um, that sin will look at you through the door as it's closing and sing at you, you'll be back, right? It's like a bad breakup we're trying to have. Keep going back into that relationship. For those of you who are familiar with Hamilton, I told you I've fallen in love with Hamilton. It's like, uh, you know, there's a character, King George, is the real King George in England, trying to suppress the Americans. And they've turned this into a Beatles-era sort of pop uh, song. When he sings a song, um, you'll be back. He says, don't change the subject, because you're my favorite subject, America. My sweet, submissive subject. My loyal, royal subject. And when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. This is what we surrender to. And it's not going away just because you say, get out of my life. The human will can't do it. It's true personally, it's true socially. Think of all the plans of history to try to bring heaven to earth through the, all the isms. I'm monarchism, humanism, Marxism, capitalism, asceticism. You just go on. All those isms are just reassertions of the human will. Attempts to inform or reform or conform the human will. And they can do good things, but at some point they're limited. So this is why it's so important, I think, as followers of Jesus, to be careful with this idea of the kingdom. Here's an error that I hear constantly. People talk about building the kingdom or extending the kingdom or bringing the kingdom. Who's the subject of all of those senses? We are. Do you think that our wills that have made the mess in the first place are competent to clean them up? If that's the case, then we just kind of use kingdom language as Christianese for go get the world back together, would you? Go get your life back together. And there is no good news in that, my friends. And Jesus doesn't ask us to do that. He says, I'm going to get your will out of the way. It's my will that matters. New Testament theologian R.T. France says, the phrase kingdom of God is really just shorthand for a sentence of which God is the subject. You're not the subject. God builds. God brings. God extends. 
So really, we hold back the tendencies of our compromised wills only to hold open our lives in a posture of receptivity. Your will, your will, not mine. C.S. Lewis says there are really only two types of people. There's the kind of person who would say to God, my will be done. And then there's the kind of person who would say to God, thy will be done. That's why I'm here. When we pray that prayer, we're beginning to change the world. Not by force of our will, but by force of his. Hold on. Hold back. And there's a third piece of this, these two petitions. And it's this, hold up. Hold up the son before the father in prayer. I really want you to understand this, because this is, this is where the money is, so to speak. Hold up the Son before the Father in prayer. Remember, after all, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. He, he wants the world changed, but he's asking them to pray. He's teaching us words, but also a way of living in his spirituality, a prayer to be prayed, a prayer to be lived. But what is prayer? Fundamentally, Christian prayer. I think the best answer I've read, perhaps, comes from a Scottish theologian called Tom Torrance. Listen to this quote. By the way, I have this quote on my Facebook page, so if you don't get it all written down, then you can get it there. But it says this, Worship and prayer are not ways in which we express ourselves, but ways in which we hold up before the Father His beloved Son. Take refuge in his atoning sacrifice and make that our plea. And he quotes a hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Prayer is not self-expression. Prayer, Christian prayer, is holding up before the Father, his beloved Son, and say, see, see, see your Son, Jesus. That's why I say we never pray alone. No, you're always going to meet the triune God in prayer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every time you pray, no matter how despondent or incapable of prayer you might feel, he prays with you. He meets you there. And what you're doing is you're really holding him up to the Father. Say, look, when you hold up the Son before the Father, remember who you're holding up. Remember you're holding up the greatest steward who ever lived, the one who in every decision he had to make always did what the Father wanted. Such a great steward, he's actually the king himself. Now return to his throne. So you're holding up the Father. When you hold up the Son before the Father, you're holding up the one who has the most receptive will ever. He offers the Father a humanity fully receptive. Remember how he wrestles his will to the ground. Jesus was human, just like you and me. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wrestles. Blood comes from his pores. And he's saying, not my will, but thine be done. You hold him up. He's done that for you. When you hold up the Son before the Father, you hold up true God of God, the very Son of God himself. You also hold up true man of man, humanity. He came born of a woman to take on the likeness of sinful human flesh, though himself he never sinned. But to build a bridge between heaven and earth, we hold him up. That's what he's done. We hold up the Lion of Judah, who has conquered all the kingdoms of the earth. We hold up the Lamb of God, who sits on the throne to hear us say, Holy, holy, holy art thou. We hold up the one who went to the cross for our sins, takes away the sins of the world. We hold up the one who broke the power of death to bring a resurrection insurrection. 
to this planet. What I'm saying is, Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom. Wherever Jesus is, God rules in his unique countercultural way. So what happens when we hold up the sun? Two things, quickly. First, I think it, it addresses both the will and the world. Remember, our will was part of the problem. But there's a way of responding to God's grace that isn't willful, but grateful. And when you and I see what God has done for us in his son, boy, in prayer, we now want to, we want to offer ourselves to his will. We want to receive all of it because we love him. This is about reshaping our heart, which we were just singing about. Wanting the right things in the right measure. It also makes a difference in the world. It's culture shaping, actually, to hold up Jesus in this way. It changes the relationships between neighbors in neighborhoods. Let me put it to you this way, and I'll be very personal. This summer, I realized that I had been deeply touched by three men uh, that I have never met. Robin Williams, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and David Foster Wallace. Some of you know those names. You may know one thing they all share in common is they led their lives to their own demise. And they have really kind of fascinated me. So I've been thinking about why is that? Here's my answer. Method actors and writers who go to the depths of human experience, the depths of human hurt, come back to represent to us in various characters what it's like to live life. And it's so hard. And when I see that in their work and their reading, I go, yeah, it is. That's what life is like. That's what it's like to be me right now. It's hard. And I appreciate the recognition of that. But I realize, here's the power. Jesus does all of that and more. That's what Jesus is doing. He's going to the brink, to the depths of pain, human suffering, on the cross, in the tomb. But then he's coming back, not just to show us how much we hurt, but to come through our pain to give us hope. It's resurrection, insurrection. When you hold up Jesus, it has implications for your neighbors. You know, the neighbors right next door to you who are going through the divorce, um, who have a son who's addicted to drugs, uh, who are living all alone and just kind of neglected by the rest of society, or who are desperately trying to climb a ladder because they think that's the only way they can get security in the world. Your neighbors right now need someone next door who falls to their knees in the pain of the world and upholds the son, the beloved son before the father. That shapes culture. We'll say more about that. Jesus offers a resurrection insurrection. And we're called to prayer, to pray. Which is confusing to me, because would God take counsel from me? I don't think so. But he will take counsel from his son, the one who him. And it's confusing to me, because Jesus has already said, your father knows what you need even before he asks, so why ask? And yet the answer comes back, way back, from the third century, a man named Origen. He says, well, God has just decided to, to use you through your prayers. He's just arbitrarily decided to rule through you in the world. To make his decisions effective through your decisions. The most important decision is to pray. So, Origen said, when there's somebody in the world who's hurt, needs healing, needs help, God has just decided that he'll bring someone to their knees to pray so that that decision they make is one of several causes, several necessary causes to bring about the change in the world that God wants. 
And so here I am, jogging through the neighborhood, not even really thinking about it, and I hear a siren. And I don't know the story. I don't know any of it. But I just start to pray, feeling kind of prompted. And I pray, and I find out later, I'm changing the world. How can that be? I'm saving a life. How could that be? They say that the wings of a butterfly can cause a tempest, a hemisphere away. And you never know when you run through or walk through your neighborhood how God has set up the dominoes for years or generations around that person so that your prayer, this one small little decision, might make a great impact and change the world. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we lift up our hearts, we lift up our hands, more than anything, we lift up your Son over this world, over our lives, over all of creation, and we worship him, and we thank you, and we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you'll help us to live through this same posture, posture of insurrection this week through that same power, the person of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.